Kelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. Uh, this time we are talking to the people from Kickstarter United, um, the Kickstarter Union. Um, it's, uh, yeah, wow, it's um, it's really exciting interview. <laughs> this is, uh, the, 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 the energy with which they approach this is really infectious and, um, and just, just fantastic. Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, you know, for those who aren't aware, uh, Kickstarter is a public benefit corporation uh, which exists to uh, allow crowdfunding for creative projects. Um, and so they fairly recently went through a unionization process. They were the first uh, corporation in in the tech sector to unionize. Um, so we've got two firsts on the show now. We've got the first cooperative ever in New Zealand and the first <laughs> first tech, tech sector union ever <laughs> for yeah. interviews. Uh, yeah. So that that's, uh, that's a feather in our caps. But uh, uh, the I think the reason why this episode is happening is uh, because um, – Kickstarters, uh, so former Kickstarter organizers uh, have put together an oral history of their unionization process, uh, which is, you know, a podcast, uh, which you can go out and download. We'll have it linked in the show notes. Um, And I highly encourage people to go listen to it. Uh, It's well, it's a cut well above your average podcast quality. Uh, oh, yeah. Very, they, very much up there. Up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with, uh, you know, it's it's being done under uh, university institutional auspices. So it's very, very polished and uh, excellent work. I, I would recommend it to anyone. It's really quite a heroic story. Uh, so either you could go listen to some of that first and then proceed with this interview or listen to this and go back to that. But either way, I'd, I'd recommend listening to both of them. Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, like I, I, it, uh, we, we, we listened to the episodes as, um, or the ones that are released so far as, uh, as research for this, um, this interview. And I was expecting something quite dry and, uh, you know, kind of dry kind of, but like it's presented with really great energy. And then just like, the sort of cavalcade of buffoonery and like clownish weirdness coming from management and then just like the twists and turns of the the plot it's like wow is, is this a is this a sitcom did this actually happen they have the dinosaur plague you know that comes that comes along and and like harasses everyone uh, yeah i mean that's straight out of like i don't know avenue five or something <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty amazing but uh mm-hmm. yeah uh it, it, it's really quite a story uh, I mean, it goes to show that actually there is a lot of um, there are a lot of proletariat stories out there that are well worth telling uh, and have a lot of drama and interest to them. We just don't see them anywhere. We get we get shows about cops, right? Um, it's, it's, does, it's not because working people aren't interesting. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so it's cops and it's Silicon Valley dickheads. They they get all the slots on TV. Um, yeah, um, but yeah, I guess uh, on to the interview, and we'll we'll catch you afterwards.
uh, thanks everyone for being here. Uh, it's a real, real honor to uh, talk to the, the people who are involved in setting up what is essentially, I think, I was going to say essentially the first ever uh, tech workers union or the unionized workplace in tech. But that, that is actually the case, isn't it? That's, 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 it is really that, um, which is super impressive and cool. Um, so uh, let's do a quick round of introductions. Um, let's start with Amy. Hi, and so thanks for having us so much. Um, I'm Amy. I used to be an engineering manager at Kickstarter and was involved in helping start Kickstarter United. Um, and I also produce a leftist podcast called Rebel Steps. Um, that is relevant to this too. Hi, I'm Toy. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I uh, was a senior product manager at Kickstarter and um, still a senior product manager, just not at Kickstarter any longer. Um, and uh, I was also uh, heavily involved in organizing Kickstarter United. Hi, I'm Oriana. Uh, I was the journalism outreach lead at Kickstarter, and then I was laid off, and now I am. So uh, yeah, and I um I came late to the organizing efforts for reasons having to do with my employment status, which we may or may not get into. But I think I picked up the slack when I got there, and was definitely one of the main folks by the end. <laughs> Hi, my name is RV. I use they them pronouns. Um, I was a trust and safety analyst at Kickstarter and helped to get us going with Kickstarter United. Um, and now I work with OPEIU, the Office of Professional Employees International Union, um, and support tech workers who are trying to organize power in their workplaces. Hey, hey, I'm Clarissa. I use she, her pronouns. And I also had the pleasure of organizing with all the people on this call and so many more of our coworkers at Kickstarter. Um, to build Kickstarter United. And I, I think I really just learned so much from everybody. And uh, right now I am a fellow at NYU and I am helping with the oral history of the Kickstarter union um, and everybody's voices are included. So yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, that, that, that oral history podcast series is really incredible. Um, we've listened to, to some of that um, for as preparation and, uh, wow, what what a story, you know. Um, so, um, I guess like, can we for the listeners like, there was this sort of like sequence of instigating events that really propelled the um, the, the workforce towards um, towards organizing in this way. And um, can we can we get a rundown of of uh, I guess I guess it's like a compressed version of the first four episodes of the of that show. Um, but like, it it really is an incredible story. Yeah, so I think maybe I was the mo like the earliest person here that that was like involved um, in Kickstarter United. So yeah, the podcast talks over it, but um, always punch Nazis is sort of like the thing that really like kicked this into high gear. Um, and what happened there was that there was a comic book on the site um, that was about punching Nazis, which all of us thought was really great because <laughs> people should punch Nazis. And um, our uh, trust and safety team reviewed it and you know said it was all good and then our legal department got a, a call from Breitbart or a message from Breitbart and was like oh you know what are you doing it's on the site and they had us take it or they decided they were going to take it down and then there was sort of this behind the scenes stuff to sort of bring this out into the public um in the company and uh the management like to call it a slack mob but basically everyone at the company was like this isn't, you know, we're not okay with this. Um, this isn't, you know, 
how you know how what we want to have what we want to be doing with our platform we want to be like you know having this sort of thing on the platform so um yeah i don't know does rb do you want (laughs) to sure um yeah and so we got to see this kind of really beautiful moment of our colleagues coming together and standing up um and actually seeing real change come out of that right like our the company decided to not bend to the whims of breitbart um the company left the project up um and then people started getting pulled into one-on-ones with their managers and getting ridiculously reprimanded. Um, and it was happening in one-on-ones and then specifically on my team with trust and safety, um, because we were kind of at the crux of, um, of the situation. Um, we got like talked to by general counsel, um, where the, our general counsel kind of came in and was like, if you can't do what we tell you to do, you need to find a different job. If you can't leave your personal politics out of this, you need to find a different job. It's like, this isn't about, I mean, it is about our personal politics, but we have policies that clearly say punching Nazis is A-OK, right? Because we are all about punching up at Kickstarter, right? We're not trying to like punch on people, like punch people who are marginalized or whatever. But like, if you're going to punch up at Nazis, great, have at it. Um, and so we see kind of all of this backlash. Um, and, um, and it was pretty disjointed um people didn't really know what was happening on on different teams um until amy kind of started hearing whispers and did this brilliant thing of bringing folks together to really talk about what was going on yeah so we had we called it the unofficial debrief um for always bunch of nazis so basically there'd been a lot of people that i'd been hearing just around the company talking about receiving um like you know being reprimanded for their behavior and a lot of them were feeling very confused like did I do something wrong it felt like I was doing the right thing you know that sort of stuff and so just really felt important to bring people together to like be like no we all felt that this was the right thing to do and it was the right thing to do um and that was the first time that that I heard someone bring up oh like we maybe we should have a union um and I think it was called the we somebody was like we could have a people's HR and someone was like that's a union um which (laughs) was very fun um but then in the background of all of this uh another colleague of ours Taylor was going around and actually asking people like do you want to organize a union like very explicitly and eventually that conversation got to me (laughs) with or Taylor's conversation got to me and then kind of all this came together um for us to actually start like we had like a first meeting where we were like, okay, like, what are we going to do about this together? Um, and I think there was kind of, I think different perspectives in the room of like, some people were like, oh, we're just getting together to like chat about how to change our workplace. And then me and Taylor and a few other folks were like, definitely there to like build a union. You know, that was like why, explicitly like why we were like, you know, taking the actions we were. Yeah, right. Um, uh, one other thing that's mentioned in the documentary that I think might be uh, interesting to our audience is is the, the the switches in leadership that happened because we do often talk about sort of the problems of founder syndrome on this podcast and it's there's a Kickstarter is kind of an interesting case of that because it kind of went from one founder to another where one seemed to be working okay and then the other one was a little bit more disastrous uh, so um, if if uh, you could uh, speak a little bit to like the background of like why legal started cracking down or why things started to become a little bit more chilled at the workplace at that time. Uh, I think maybe I, I think I was the only one there who was the win there when the switch happened besides Clarissa. So I guess I can talk about it a little bit. I was there. I joined the company like three or four weeks before 
the kind of main founder came back. Um, so it was like, I like to joke that like everyone who joined Kickstarter has like the big thing that happened a week or two after they joined. So like, because <laughs> um, it was just very chaotic. So mine was that Perry, the former uh, CEO and the founder um, came back. They're definitely like, they're all like co-founders, like quote unquote co-founders, but like Perry definitely behaves and acts like the founder, kind of the primary founder. Um, and as far as we're aware, um, owns a majority of the company so that get, and is the chairman of the board. So, you know, there's a lot of like concentrated power there. Um, and yeah, I think it, it definitely is very like founder syndrome like what went on at Kickstarter where it's like, you know, there was sort of the good old days that he had overseen and then he, you know, things weren't going the way that he wanted them to. And so he came back in sort of this sense of being like, well, I did. So I was so good at running the company way back when I'm going to bring back all the things that made us like a weird startup, like the, the dinosaurs incident, which is on the, um, which is on the oral history. But there's this bizarre thing where he like during a very intense time where he had given us a big, big deadline, he like brought dinosaurs into the office like every day for a week. It was really bizarre. Um, but yeah, I think like basically the the former CEO, who was one of the co-founders, had like over a couple of years, like very deliberately brought in um, like a lot of women in leadership and a lot of like um very like deliberately bringing in leaders to the company. And then when Perry came back, Basically, he pushed all of those folks out and hired a bunch of new leaders. And like his his basically his only job has ever been like running Kickstarter. So I I, my take is that he just didn't do a very good job picking new leadership that like really could align with what where we wanted to go as a company. And so he brought in a lot of people that like in my in my opinion, like weren't experienced enough for the roles that they were in and therefore were like sort of insecure. And then uh couldn't handle kind of difficult conflict within the organization. Yeah, sure. I, I kind of got the impression from the uh, documentary series that uh, Kickstarter maybe started out with a, a pretty pretty good culture and everyone felt pretty good about it. And that combined with the company being structured as a, I think, a public benefit corporation, is that, is that the term? That sort of gave some fig leaf kind of cover to management and allowed management and the owners to have a lot of autonomy, which then came to fruition with their kind of like really dysfunctional um, behavior. And like, it, 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 it felt as if there was this kind of like stress of divergence between the like apparent stated values and the actual structure of the company. And the public benefit corporation sort of giving some ground cover to like, oh, we're actually the good guys, but then it's still structured as owners and so on. I don't know. It does, is that a fair read? Um, could anyone speak to that? Yeah, I think that's um, totally on point. And I think that like um, a lot of people at Kickstarter believe in the, in the PBC, right? There are many people who come and take a severe pay cut to work at a company that has a charter. Um, there and isn't um, prioritizing profit. Um, and Kickstarter really like because of the mission and because of like the the focus on um, supporting creative communities, right? Like there are a lot of folks who like Kickstarter does an excellent job of hiring. We get a lot of cool people who really believe in what we're doing and are willing to um, like um, have their material reality impacted because of their belief in what they're doing. Um, but the but there again in in the same way that like with a nonprofit right like you you have people who go and work really hard to work on the thing they're doing 
but because um, we're there to contribute to a mission that gets put above everything else. And so any doubt, whether it's um, doubt in leadership or doubt in a specific product or questioning decision-making, it's, well, I'm here. Like you can kind of hide behind this. I'm here to, uh, to focus on the mission and to push this forward. Um, and the fact that you are questioning that, right? Like your pri- means your priorities are off. If you can't align with us because we are the ones who said that this is how we're going to do our work together, um, then it doesn't happen. Yeah. And then uh, it seemed that the, um, the values and the, this, this sort of nebula stuff was then it kind of explicitly deployed as, as union busting tactics because you, you could be then framed as um, saboteurs who are going to ruin the vibes, you know, and like, oh, everybody's just here for the mission. You know, they don't, they don't need this union stuff. Um, and I guess maybe that's a segue into like, could, could, could you speak to the, 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 the kinds of resistance and the kinds of union busting tactics that the management deployed? Yeah, so I can speak to this a little bit. Um, You kind of hit the nail on the head there with, you know, they saw a union as a third party that was kind of ruining the the vibes and the the unification of the Kickstarter employees and just Kickstarter as a whole. Um, They placed upper management placed themselves as part of, you know, just the greater Kickstarter employees. ecosystem where it was it was very obviously like they were the ones who made the calls and we had to just fall in line and that was kind of under the underlying messaging across everything that they were saying but it was sugar-coated and candy-coated with this you know the unions coming in and now it's it's ruining the the like the unity that we had and kickstarters like uh, culture is suffering and, and uh, this is uh, an inherently adversarial um, relationship that it's be, it's starting within our culture. Um, and we heard these phrases over and over again. And um, it was just this, this just a series of talking points, painting the union organizers as the bad guys. And uh Every and and uh, upper management is just trying to make sure that everybody gets along, um, and that we were here to protect you from the union organizers. And we we consistently saw this this played out um, over and over and over again uh, to the point where it was it was ta- it was very it, it in itself this talking these talking points like created a very toxic environment to work in. Um, our coworkers were, you saw like a, a definite shift in relationships with coworkers that you had because either they were afraid to speak up or they actually believed what the talking points that management was saying because they, they didn't know anything else or they hadn't been personally affected by something that had happened and therefore couldn't believe that these things that union organizers were bringing up as talking points were actually real. Um, Yeah, I mean, this kind of emotional manipulation or sort of ideological leveraging of of the uh, mission of the company um, is really demoralizing and and divisive. one thing that kind of struck me was that a lot of the people who were participating in, in this uh, oral history had some um, background with leftist politics, maybe 
read some critical theory in school or did some activism or had family who were union members or whatever. Uh, but there was this kind of like idea that you could get voluntary recognition from the management um, and, it, and sort of a shock at each stage of this process that they were as committed to union busting as they were. Uh, to what degree do you think like that kind of uh, ideology of we're all mission driven, we're all in this for a purpose, kind of like removed your critical thinking about what management was doing versus like if you had been in a workplace where it was just out and out, we're here for capital like, you know, lots of people talk about working at a bank because I guess you're in New York. So it's like if you were working at a bank, would you have expected this kind of thing? Would it have taken a different approach in your unionizing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like many of us did have uh, who especially early on, I think it like became less true. But a lot of us were you know, people who had leftist politics or, you know, we, you know, had some idea of what a union was, but none of us had actually organized a union before. And I think in the tech industry in general, not just at like mission driven companies, like there's a lot more sort of like draw, like being like, oh, we're all a family. We're all together. Like, oh, like anyone can be a founder. Anyone can, you know, rise up the ranks. So like, there's a lot more sort of like, or there'll be like a lot of times more so in tech companies, I think, than in other industries, someone might just be friends with someone who's like two levels above them. You know, like that's there's just like a lot more sort of casual relationships between management and um, kind of non-management. So I think like that was related. But yeah, I mean, definitely we were like, oh, we're a PBC. We're a good company. Like, you know, you know, maybe maybe they'll be friendly to this. Um, and I really distinctly remember talking to a friend of mine who does labor organizing in like the service industry and asking him being like early on. I was like, hey, we all kind of think like maybe they'll be friendly to this because it's like a good company. Like, how likely do you think that is? And he was like, oh, like five percent. And I was like, wait, really? And then late, like months, months later, after we had like won the election, I like was hanging out with him again. And I was like, oh, like I remember this conversation. And like, obviously you were like super correct. Um, and he was like, oh yeah, I just said 5% to like make you feel nice. But like, really, I thought it was like zero, you know? So it was like, basically like none of us knew, like <laughs> none of us had actually organized the union before. And I, and you know, at least a lot of those who were involved early on and like, we were just naive about it. But yeah, the mission driven stuff definitely affected our you know, us being naive. Yeah. And I think that, um, to the, so being mission driven, right. Like helped us, uh, like definitely pulled the, the covers over our eyes. And also I think that there's a tendency among, um, leftist politics to just be like, or like people on the left to just be like, if you have the right politics, you're going to do the right thing. Um, and we forget about the real importance of relationship building. And so this felt like a really strong reminder of like, no, organizing isn't just like we're doing education and telling people what their rights are, telling people, like explaining to people how voluntary recognition is a democratic process. Like that was good. And it's important for people to have that information, but that's not what helped us win. It was the like slow, tedious relationship building that actually got us to the point where folks were able to like stand up and vote. Yes. Um, and I think that that's another thing that kind of yeah, voluntary recognition was, uh, it was surprising, right, that they did not recognize us. But also, I think it speaks to kind of where we were at in, in our organizing effort of people have, like, if we had had 90% of the company that was ready to fight for voluntary recognition, it would have been a very different situation. Um, and so just kind of mapping 
um, the ways in which relationships were built and the ways in which fear was mongered throughout the cadence of our campaign. Yeah, I definitely want a plus one RV on a lot of those points. Um, and just to kind of go back to a point that Kyle made before with regards to um, the leftist, like how the majority of the organizers had like leftist politics. Speaking from my own perspective, I was never very involved in politics or organizing at all before I got involved with this. And it was purely the or the relationships that I built before being brought into Kickstarter United at Kickstarter and then during that actually pushed my politics further left. And I think that it actually helped. I know that I'm not the only one that was involved in organizing Kickstarter United that this also happened. So I think like there was kind of a like as RV was saying before, it was the, the meat of this was the actual relationships that you developed and being able to educate and explain and help someone get over the line for that piece. I just wanted to share that my experience was almost completely the opposite. I do come from like deeply leftist politics. I've been in a union before. Uh, so I had to relearn, you know, similarly this idea that like someone who has good politics will make good choices. I mean, to me, it was so obvious how how well a union complements a public benefit corporation, how clearly advocating for workers' rights was the same amount of like seeking equitable treatment for artists in the world. You know, it was so aligned and so clear. And in a few early conversations I had before I was even officially part of the organizing effort, it became clear to me that that assumption was very flawed and not everybody shared that intrinsic belief. So I too had to go back and figure out like how instead to like meet people where they were at and like understand where other people were at who were not so immediately knee jerk pro this idea in order to build those relationships and be, you know, come to authentic understandings with people about how this would help them, not necessarily how like the politics would align beautifully with radical thinking. Uh, I think all of this has been great. And I think one thing that I would add is I was more on the side where Toy was coming from, where I had not done much organizing in the past. Um, and I was on the left, but I wasn't, my beliefs weren't so strongly rooted. <laughs> like I didn't have a sort of experience in life to sort of back up my leftist beliefs before the union drive and uh, the union drive felt like a one huge vertigo experience where, uh, you know, the things that I had somewhat not questioned in tech, like, um, like the idea that, you know, your company is doing good things most of the time, or, uh, that you can decentralize power or, uh, that there's somewhat of a meritocracy, like all of those very, very strong tech culture ideals I sort of somewhat bought into and during the union drive basically all of those were knocked down like dominoes and I just yeah really got a glimpse at how how power really works in in a workplace and just, just yeah just learned a lot uh yeah I mean I personally have uh, actually volunteered for Kickstarter in the past. Uh, I worked as an interpreter for Kickstarter in Japan. 
um, on a volunteer basis when I was there. And I can kind of speak to like, yeah, you know, I come from leftist politics as well. But it was only after I did, I was like, is that a good idea? <laughs> it was a lot of fun, but was it a good idea? <laughs> and I, I've definitely gone through the same experience being a teacher uh, because there's a lot of the same sort of like um, ideological pressure put on you by your bosses as a teacher that you are being mission driven and you should sacrifice everything for your students. And it's very difficult, even with, you know, inoculation or an ideological education on the left or even just knowing a bunch of theory to to connect that to your real life circumstances and actual relationships you have with people. Um, I guess inoculation is the thing I wanted to kind of bring up, right? Because um, at, at, at some point you got uh, involved with a uh, an existing union and essentially Kickstarter United would be a, a, a subunion under this, this uh, what would be referred to as the national, right? That's the, the sort of term for the... Um, the higher union and it this got you resources right that like people could teach you the kind of stuff that the bosses are going to deploy against you and i, I love the term inoculation for that um and that it, it it felt like there was a turning point in the narrative there when um when the bosses went on the offensive and trying to like union boss by like you know uh, tugging on everyone's heartstrings then you could already have people prepared to say no no they're they're screwing with us that's what that is. I recognize that from the, the inoculation. Um, I guess, can anyone speak to more of that sort of stuff or like the other kinds of benefits that you, you got from having the national involved and helping you out with that, that process? Um, I can talk a little bit about the, the benefits of the national. Um, that's, that's kind of my vibe right now. Um, <laughs> but so I, um, I'm a lot, I've been like organizing for like 10 years um, and had never done labor organizing when we decided we wanted to form a union. Um, and as an organizer, I'm a big believer in like organizing is great because everyone can do it. It's literally just taking the skills, resources, and energy that you have and starting there and like building with your people, right? Like anyone can do that, but that doesn't mean that there aren't best practices or like ways to do things. So you're not recreating the wheel. And I think that that's where the national really came in, right? OPIU knows how to run a union campaign. No one had ever run a campaign in tech before, but the, the general processes of how to collect cards from your colleagues, how to track data, how to think about mapping the relationships in your workplace, how to pay attention to people's body language, how to be like, oh, I reached out to this person um, and they never got back to me. And that's the third time they've done that. So maybe their assessment has changed and we need to think creatively about how to re-engage them. Right. Like those are all of the questions that OPIU was able to come in and really coach us through so that we could be strategic in our um, in our planning um, and ensure that we weren't just kind of going about haphazardly trying to trying to run towards um, a union recognition without actually knowing what that meant. Um, so I think that was a really valuable thing just to be able to have experts come in and, and support us in, in navigating all of the different ways we could have run this campaign. And I just want to shout out immeasurably Kate and her work and later Grace and her work. Um, the way that they coached us, the way that Kate, you know, she would come in and say, like, 
here's the problem. Here are five solutions that I see. Please have a conversation. Let me know what you all come to. And then I will tell you what I think. Like just such an incredible way of empowering us to be in charge of our union that we were building while also giving gentle guardrails and like, you know, encouragement as needed or discouragement as needed to just help us get there. And she really uh, is a brilliant, brilliant woman. We are so, so lucky that we had her uh, guiding us. Yeah. If, if I could jump in for a second too, I think something else that is really, was really cool to witness is OPEIU did come in and, and help us understand best practices, but they also let us, I wouldn't say make some mistakes, but they would let us sort of like play out some scenarios that we really wanted to uh, to pursue. You know, like, like we talked about before, how some of us thought that voluntary recognition was going to be a relatively easy process and, or within reach. Um, OPEIU, I think, knew that that was a little bit you know, uh, of a higher reach than we had uh, had <laughs> thought it would be. And they sort of let us uh, run with it because we, you know, the, the workers are the union. So um, they, they did a really good job of letting us do the shit, but, you know, ha- helping us sort of guide uh, the storm as it, as it is. But, but also another thing that they did really well is when we had really tough emotional situations, like, you know, organizers being targeted or uh, the union getting a lot of heat from management in communication emails. Um, They would, especially Kate, would take a lot of time to make sure that the organizers themselves felt secure and felt like confident going back into Kickstarter HQ and continuing to to organize. And I, I definitely remember sitting with Kate you know, late at night after union meetings and talking through some of the really tough uh, situations that were going on at Kickstarter. And and that was uh, that was pretty invaluable. Yeah, just to jump on the back of that, um, OPAU definitely understood, Kate and Grace specifically understood how important it was for the organizers, for us to like feel safe, to feel supported and I think they they were so integral of making sure that we you know they knew how much we were taking on at some points in time and they wanted to they checked in constantly around our own uh, capacity around our self-care encouraging taking time because I think that that is something that kind of gets over seen is that organizers I mean we were this was a second job literally a second job and for a year, over a year. And so we were all burnt out. And I think it's, it's, it's something that is often overlooked is that, you know, you're only, you can only give so much and you have to take care of yourself. And I think like they were really good at like recognizing that and encouraging us to take that time when we needed it because they knew that we couldn't run at that capacity forever. Um, one thing I would like to bring up is we've we've talked previously about uh, how management, you know, used a lot of sort of emotional manipulation and this was really demoralizing. But one other thing that's mentioned in uh, the oral history is that your organizational effort uh, focused on 
joy and maintaining joy among your colleagues or fostering joy among your colleagues. Um, I'd like you to speak a little bit about that strategy because I think it's super important uh, when it comes to institution building and just like solidarity. I'll talk about it because it was my favorite. Uh, Okay, let's just put it this way. No one wants to come into a room and just like work really hard and be super serious about it all the time. Like if you don't make it fun, like and make and and build community and actually feel like you're doing and building something with people that you care about and who also support you and who you're having a good time with. Like, I don't want to jump on four hours of calls a week for, for something that feels miserable. So it was integral at least for me and I know for a lot of people involved to make this feel like something positive and joy is positivity. And I think that, you know, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows and we knew that. And I think like, but being able to infuse those like little moments of joy, even in just the form of like an affirmation to someone to make them feel seen and recognized for the work that they're doing and putting towards this effort was so important Uh, and just to build off of that like um i think what you're facing or what i what i constantly came back to in my one-on-ones is like at work we are isolated right like our performance our pay our relationship with our managers what's happening on our team the specific things we're doing are all isolated maybe you talk about it with your team like uh, specific people on your team but like a lot of it is like, oh, I have this problem or I'm dealing with this thing with HR. It is all mine and I have to carry that burden alone. Um, and through the union, we we're able to create a culture of connection and really finding joy in that, finding ritual in that, finding affirmation so that um, we could break down this sense of like, it is just about me being alone and this giant company. No, it was about all of us and really being able to adapt for that connectivity Um which was building power and building sustainability and all of these things at once. Yeah. Just to build on that. Like, I think when you're building a union, like there's the logistics of it of like, Oh, we're going to like sign cards and like, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to get a bargaining agreement. And like, you know, all of that is good, but like what you're really building is community. And you're like building a strong community that can be resilient and can support each other and things like that. Um, So like, really a union is a community and in my opinion at at the end of the day and so you have to like build that and like build those connections and and that is joyful to like have like humans desire community and so like you know building that like yes building a strong community helps you get through the hard parts but having that community is like inherently joyful and i just want to say in like practical terms in case anybody's listening to this or could use As I mentioned, the organizing effort had been underway for like nine months by the time I walked in. And my first union meeting, uh, they were like, "Okay, we begin with our stating our values and talking about what happened this week that like made us feel aligned with them. And we end every meeting by affirming one another. And I was like, this is I've been in a lot of activist circles. I've been in a lot of endless meetings with finger wagging and like baton passing. And I was like, oh, this is the most beautiful setup I have ever seen. So it started with that and that carried through into all of the ways that we interacted with one another, how to support one another and with everybody that we were trying to draw into this community of strength uh, that we were building. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really that's all 
really amazing stuff, right? And that, that just sounds so much nicer than the usual sort of uh, left militant organizing stuff where it seems that the, these these masochists, right, like nine hours of drudgery is not enough for them a day. They have to do it after after hours and two and make it as just as dour as the, 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 the day job is. Um, yeah, I guess um, I'm kind of interested in the, what kind of advice would you like to pass on to workplaces that would try this themselves? Like maybe like some big roadblocks that you encountered that maybe aren't obvious going in or um, strategic or tactical kind of moves that really paid off. Um, just, you know, throwing the floor open. What would you say to someone who's trying trying this stuff for themselves? I can start just by saying for me, uh, building a union was about conversations. It cannot be overemphasized how much this is about relationship building. Um, I mean, the infrastructure of the organizing committee, we were tremendously lucky in that we had such a diversity of skills from the beginning. I mean, I'm, I wasn't there, but I'm, I know that this to be true that, you know, some people are incredible at logistics and other people are incredible at, you know, deciding when it's time to bake cookies for each other. Um, and it was similarly, we had such a range of people from across the company that it's just, and it was a small enough company that everybody, every worker, there was somebody in the organizing group who had a more than just casual relationship with them. So we were really able to like figure out the right person to reach everyone, at least for an initial conversation. Um, yeah. So to me, it is everything about it is being willing to listen and knowing what to say in order to help people understand what you're doing and why in order to understand everybody's unique needs and situation and how a union can be beneficial to them, whether, as we were saying earlier, in a philosophical sense of like pursuit of progressive policies or in a very personal sense of like how this will help you and your family and your immigration status and your uh, earning levels. You know, there are so many ways um, that obviously I think a union is beneficial to every single worker, but you have to know something about every single worker to help them, to guide them to understand why this would be useful to them. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask um, about the size of the company. I believe it's mentioned that it's about 150 people uh, in the documentary. Is that correct? So if you, yeah, it used to be 150 people, and then they laid off 40% of the staff. Um, but okay. our unit was, um, I think, 79 people um, in the total unit. Um, because, and this is a thing we haven't really talked about, and we can maybe put it on the on the icebox of just um, the. Com I think the added complication of organizing in tech based on the d huge diversity of titles and it being really unclear who's a manager or who's a confidential employee. But we, I'm gonna like put that on the table because I really want like everything that Oriana said about um, this being about relationships is so so central. Um, and just to put that in perspective, like by the end of your organizing campaign, you will have talked to, if not every person in your bargaining unit, at least 80% of the people in your bargaining unit. And so if you think about your company and you're like, oh, we have a 700 person bargaining unit, like you're talking to over 500, close to 600 people just like in your assessments in order to be able to even get to an election. Right. And, and that can be really overwhelming, but it is. Um, thinking about being strategic in who you're reaching out to. I, always, I often come back to this metaphor of it's like building a muscle where you start with like the light 
and easy conversation, then you start building like really simple processes for like how we engage with one another, how we support one another. And then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again and you take on more and more. And so really setting yourself up to think about like, not only are you going to need to eventually reach that 80% or a hundred percent of your bargaining unit, you want to, you want to set yourself up to grow into that. It's not like you're going to flip the switch in one day. It's like, bam, we've talked to everybody. It's learning along the way um, and adapting and like fixing your form so that it's like, all right, we're not straining our muscles. We're just building a little bit at a time. And eventually we're going to get to that big number. Yeah. I think to build on that, um, something that I had to continually tell myself in organizing was to not be discouraged by the difficult conversations that you had, um, because you do learn from them. You learn more about yourself. Um, you learn more about the person who you're talking to, um, try and go in with as little expectation of what you think that person is going to think, um, and actually allow them to share what they think with you so that you can take on more of a listening role rather than, uh, like explaining role, I guess. Cause I think it's, it's often, uh, it's often just people think that you you're having these union conversation or these union organizing conversations around, you know, you're just telling them what, what a union is and what, why we need one. Whereas actually you should be asking them why they would want one. Like, and I think like that, those conversations were the most, some, some are, some are going, you're going to have difficult conversations. It's going to happen. Um, and you have your support, you have your union behind you and you've built that community. I just wanted to jump in about the, about sort of like, what would be the one thing that you tell other people or like, what would be advice? Um, I think some of the people that I sort of, learned the most from during the union drive and the organizers who were the most effective really leaned into the creative set of organizing. You know, organizing can be super exciting because like Choi said, you're, you're listening to people and you're saying, what would you do with more power? You know, how would you want to make the workplace better? You know, how do you want to make the workplace suit your values and your goals? And, to come at that with like a level of joy and excitement because it is a creative collaborative process. I think that can really be one of the strongest ways to organize. Yeah. I love that. Organizing really is just so creative in every way. Just like trying to get to the, to the end of a, of a campaign like this, it's like, you're going to come up against a bunch of different hard things and like getting really creative about like, how can we use the skills we have in the room to like, overcome this and get to the next level of things. Um, I wanted to chime in with um, my sort of little bit of advice, though. Um, you know, obviously, plus one to what everyone else has said. And then, um, you know, burnout is obviously an issue. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, I think especially if you have, if you are sort of like take charge person or if you're someone with um, existing organizing experience or existing leftist politics and you're like really passionate about making this happen, like, you're going to burn yourself out immediately if you're not super, super careful. So I think it's really, really important to like lean on everyone in the group, really like leave space, like hold back and leave space for other people who need to like 
test their legs and like get their sea legs of organizing. Like you have to make space for other people to like grow into organizing and grow into like leadership within the group um, because you really do need everyone to feel really confident in like taking taking charge of different parts of the campaign and like really contributing. And that can be very different than like a workplace setting where you maybe have a manager or you have a product manager or a tech lead or, you know, whoever it is who's like in charge, you know, and that's like, that is how our, <laughs> that's how every workplace is structured and working with a union, like you're going to be working pretty much. You're going to be working non-hierarchically by default, right? Like there's not, you're not going to elect a president of your organizing campaign. Like that's not how it's going to work. So that can be a very different experience for almost everyone involved. So just like think about how you can grow. If you're someone with ex existing experience, in organizing, like think about how you can grow the other people in the group to like step in and uh, start to like become an organizer that can then do that again with with more folks. Yeah, that's um, that's all wonderful. Um, and I, I love the energy. I love the enthusiasm here. It's um, it sounds like a hell of a time. Um, RV, did you want to speak to the um, the, the the problems of like whether to organize lower level managers and so on? Because that, that did that did seem very interesting in the documentary. Um, I can talk about that a little bit, and then I know that Amy will certainly have things to say. Um, but I think that um, in tech, we have a really, um, and, and in, in a variety of new workplaces, we have a new challenge of um, when unions started, right, there was the boss, and then there were like, if you think about like people on a factory floor, like everyone in the same level. Um, and since then, um, like labor law hasn't really adapted for um protections for lower level managers, especially in tech, when um, you might have um, a lower level manager who has direct reports, but isn't actually able to hire or fire them. And the feedback that they give doesn't necessarily, isn't the only thing that like results in their promotion. Um, and in a lot of, and the, the middle, the lower level managers don't actually have a say in the direction of the company. Like they're just there to help kind of keep things going and serving a really clear like function that's supporting people, but not, um, not one that has much more power. Um, and right now, um, those managers are not, um, typically eligible under the national labor relations act um, because they still have some supervisory status. Um, so part of our strategy with going for voluntary recognition initially was this idea of potentially being able to include lower level managers because we saw them as a part of our community of interest. They shared a lot of the same issues with us um, where they would just receive instructions from on high um, and have to execute on them when like they would still get reprimanded for asking certain questions or get removed from meetings for based on like how they were giving feedback Etc. Right. So, like the the challenges they were facing were much more similar to us than, um, say, like a director level manager. Um, and I think all across um, tech and other like new um, new kind of industries, we're seeing this challenge of how do you build solidarity? How do you actually understand who your community of interest is, especially when um, our workplaces are structured to um, have like. I don't know, 20 managers, all of whom have maybe one direct report each, right? Like that should, that should not preclude someone um, from being able to, to be in solidarity with their, with essentially their peers. Um, so yeah, on managers though. Um, so I was a manager 
at Kickstarter. So I was part of this group that we were sort of trying to, you know, push for all at voluntary recognition to include. Um, and RB did a great job of like summarizing kind of the, the logistics of that. But um, I also have some thoughts on like, the difficulty of like kind of actually making that happen. And I think the thing with managers in tech is that in my opinion, there's sort of like a 50 50 split between like people that are like individuals at the company who see a need for helping their teammates who see a need for a need for organizing work or who see, you know, underrepresented folks not getting the support they need or whatever. And they get into management to try and like legitimately solve those problems and then immediately realize they can't <laughs> from a middle management position. And like, I think those folks are very organizable, right? Because they the reason they got into management was in because of solidarity feelings sort of like solidarity with their, um, you know, with their coworkers. And then the other half are very much more like climbers. You know, they are looking for a bigger title. They're looking for a title to then jump to another company, you know, and I think like that half of managers are just like not organizable. Like they don't want to be in solidarity with, with individual contributors, with, you know, the workers, they want to climb the ladder and they want to align themselves with management. So they're up for those promotions and things like that. So I think like, had we, had we been able to organize the middle managers before we asked for voluntary recognition, we might have been able to get it and get managers included. But we just like really weren't able to because we weren't able to get enough of the middle managers sort of like on board. Um, and like, I mean, obviously, in my opinion, the people that are the climbers, like it's a it's a dead end game. Like not all of you are going to make it to the top and like you should be in solidarity and like it will be better for you in the end to be part of this thing. But obviously, uh I'm not I'm not the normal person who's like in management and like looking to climb the ladder. So um, anyway, those are some thoughts about managers. Um, So just I so I was involved in the organizing up until the point when we did not win volunteer recognition. And then the few of us managers who were really involved had to like step out. So about like halfway ish through the campaign, um, I had to like stop organizing. So that's just some context on that. Yeah, uh, I, I think a lot of the climbers are kind of like that temporarily embarrassed CEO mindset. Absolutely. I think that's all very on point, right? Because, um, uh, and I, th- I think, like, I mean, I think RV mentioned this, that, like, this is very different from, like, the mass worker of the early 20th century, like the, the gargantuan factory with, like, just row after row of blue jumpsuits and, and yellow hard hats, um, that the, the, the workplaces of today are kind of, like, micro-detailed and fragmented in this kind of way, and pe- you have people who are effectively peers that have, like, sort of discontinuous titles, and it's not actually super apparent uh, what the hierarchy really is. And these people who are, you know, they are arguably somewhere up that ladder, but don't really have any power and also have no real desire to dominate people. And so um, I think that's certainly a thing we need to adapt to. Um, it's very reminiscent of the thing we saw with um, Callum Kant and his uh, thing about like organizing delivery workers. That you'd had like restaurant workers that would do a walkout, and then their supervisors would also work at, walk out because they're paid ten cents an hour more. And it's like it's not they're not actually on the boss's sides; they're much closer to the bottom of the rung. Um, so yeah, I think it's probably a mis- one always has to be careful about not like letting vipers into the nest um, by including too much of the, the higher ranks of management, but it seems like a real losing game to exclude the um, the lower levels of management, certainly. Yeah, um, piggyback on that a little bit. Um, as I think, as Arvi mentioned before, there are just so many different types of titles in and, uh, and tech, and because this is a new organizing wave, essentially, um, it, it, the 
there's a lot of gray area and, and, and a lot of picking through and trying to fit it to the law. Um, and I think like what is super important and I, and I've realized post Kickstarter United campaign is that organizers communicate with each other. Um, I know personally, you know, as a product manager, my role is questioned in a lot of other organizing campaigns because I have, you know, I manage teams of people to do work uh, in the work that they do, but I'm not actually functionally managing anyone. And I know that already we've seen instances of, you know, certain of my role not being included in organizing um, units. And so I think it's just so important for organizers in tech to continue to communicate with each other and, and share and, um, and not just skill share, but just like knowledge share of, of the things that they've uh, experienced and the, and the ways that they've been organizing together. Just to add on to that, like, I, I think what's really interesting for tech in this moment is organizing in tech. It, it, there are some areas that are uh, gray areas. And the stronger your union is and the stronger your organizing drive is, the more you can push for these uh, sort of undefined areas and sort of push for what you want and what will help you build power. But one thing to keep in mind for anybody who's trying to organize their workplace in tech, it's very likely that management will use your goals in these gray areas to discredit your organizing effort. And when I say that, like for us at Kickstarter, when we tried to organize middle managers or lower level managers, that was used against us as sort of like a a talking point. And then also when we tried to organize for sort of power or influence over large decisions, like there was uh, a major product that had been dismantled at Kickstarter called Drip. Um, management also used that and the idea of manager rights uh, to, to sort of sort of plant the seed that maybe the organizers don't know what they're talking about. You know, look, they tried to organize managers. Look, they don't know what management rights is, you know. So these great areas can be used to discredit you. Um, yeah, basically anything imaginative is also somewhat risky. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as a manager who was trying to organize, I was like extremely vilified, like repeatedly, like by the CEO. It was me and this one other manager who was like just also like a delightful person. Um, and it was just like really like the CEO would repeatedly get up and be like, managers are involved and that makes them so bad. And it's like you're talking about like just a couple of like really nice people. <laughs> um, but uh, I wanted to also talk about about um, like precedent setting. So like one of the reasons that we wanted to try and get managers in is that we were like, if we can do this, which obviously we weren't able to, but if we can, we can set a precedent so that other companies can say, you know, you know, it's like a legally set precedent, which is, you know, very powerful. And so, you know, obviously we, we wished we could do that and we didn't get there, but that was like a thought in our mind too. And then one other thing about managers is that like a, one, a union busting tactic is to promote a bunch of people into management immediately. And like at a company the size of Kickstarter, 150 people, bargaining unit of like 90 people, they can chip it away. They can chip away at the number of people in your unit um, really quickly. And the bigger your unit, the more powerful you are, the more leverage you have. So, you know, if we were able to include middle managers, our unit would have been like substantially larger um, and that would have given us like more power over the company. And it would have 
dis- it would have like removed the tactic from management side of being able to promote, promote people to just have one report. And it would be like, well, okay, great. They're still in the union, you know? So I, it's still a fight. I wish we could have, we could have won, but it was, it's, it's a tough one if you go that route for sure. Absolutely. Right. I guess the, the, the lesson is that they'll use everything against you um, at some point or another. Um, also like the, when, uh, in the documentary, the term management rights came up, I just, I, I just thought it was such a funny phrase because it, it immediately suggests some sort of bizarre libertarian sort of, um, crazy town sort of stuff. Um, but yeah. Um, so we have any, any closing remarks, um, before we wrap up anything, any, anything else you'd like to cover? I do have one last subject I would like to ask about if it's okay for people's time. Okay. Uh, yeah. One thing that comes up in, uh, the, uh, oral history is this question of a media blackout, um, not speaking to the press. Uh, I think this is something when I mention I'm doing this interview, I, I personally, I'm not a Kickstarter user, but I know many, many people who have run campaigns. Um, And the thing that they were asking about is, you know, what was the media blackout about and what was the opinion about a boycott? Like, should people boycott? Should people not boycott? Uh, Because um, I know that hasn't been like I'm sure that's forthcoming in the oral history. It's just not out yet, but uh, <laughs> it's it's something that I've had a lot of questions about. So with Kickstarter, um, we like we, like we've said a um, number of times, it's really about relationship building, um, and whether and we got a lot of pushback from our colleagues um, who are like, I don't care if like all of our creators think that this is the right thing, or I don't care if you know, some leftist podcast is saying that this is the right thing, it's going to impact my reality. Um, And so I don't want this outside, like the outside pressure campaign could, like there's a lot of defiling the brand that that, um, we could be, we were told um, that we were doing. Um, And so that was clearly um, a union busting tactic, but it also did have direct implications on the outreach that we were trying to do. Um, And it eroded, and um, so by agreeing to um, a media blackout, we we're um, really trying to keep the conversations internal. Um, and then when it came to a boycott, um, we, again, wanted to make sure that we actually had the support within um, our community of interest, within Kickstarter employees, um, before we um, pushed, you know, from the outside, um, because we because we still didn't have at that point, the, the super majority of folks. Um, and so we didn't like, it was really important for us to focus on building trust with our colleagues first. Yeah. I think another thing to add about sort of using the media or using, using press to put pressure on the company or management, or even to influence the cultural, um, climate within the the company, um, I kind of I kind of like to think about using the media kind of like energy in a food chain. Like the most the most power that you're going to have is from controlling your labor within the company. And then every every tactic where you move outside of the company is going to decrease the effectiveness of that strategy, at least in my opinion. 
So when you go to the media, yes, you might be able to put temporary pressure on the company, but you're not actually doing the really difficult work of organizing your coworkers, which is through these one-on-one conversations. So I, I think that might not have been where our heads were at at the time. It might have been just, you know, hey, we want to keep this conversation internal so we can keep organizing. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's just something to keep in mind for people who are working at tech companies that might think going to the press is a strong strategy. I think it can be one tool in your toolbox, but it's not where most of your power is. Like a million plus one to that. But um, I just wanted to, to add um, with regards to the external campaigns that we ran, we were running them it was kind of almost last resort campaigns in some in some cases. I mean, we, I believe when we started to really push heavily on the recognized KSRU campaign, which we did request um, creator input for, for um, an external input, um, was coming on the heels of our comrades being let go. So, yeah, yeah. And that was also after, after we as a union had gained a significant amount of support internally. So there was sort of that balancing act of having done quite a bit of organizing work before going external to the press. So would it be fair to say then that um, going to the press early before getting that mass support inside the company uh, could have been uh, detrimental in that it would have been seen as like playing dirty? And that it would have also been an opportunity cost of like doing that instead of having the conversations internally. Would that be a fair summary? I think that's that's how it that's how it played out. I mean, <laughs> even when we didn't go to the press, even when the press just got a hold of what was going on inside of Kickstarter, it yeah, it sort of like was detrimental to our internal conversations. Um, yeah, exactly. That was basically what I was going to say. And then on top of that, like the mission drivenness and like the like, oh, we're a good company vibe also influenced this because um, I guess. And then on top of that, there was an ongoing narrative, which is a very common union busting tactic of being like, oh, having a union will be bad for our business and we might fail as like a company, which when you layer the like good company mission drivenness on top of that, it's like, oh, you're taking away this thing from creators that need it, you know? And so I think by, you know, requesting something like a boycott, which what does have power, right? Like workers have power from withholding their labor. Users can have power by withholding, but using a platform, but in our, so that can be a tactic depending on kind of your company's situation. For us, that was not working because internally it was like our colleagues who who we need to convince to, you know, be part of this. They're like, you're hurting the company, you know, which is like, you can think about how exactly that, if that plays out at your workplace. Um, But that was like a dynamic that we ran into. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for just sort of clarifying all of this because there's so much confusion about it at the time. And I feel like still some confusion out there about what the internal versus the external dynamic was and what the peculiarities and particularities of, of Kickstarter were. So it's very good for people to hear this, I think. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Cool. Good stuff. Um, yeah, I guess if that's everything, we should we can start wrapping up. Um uh, thanks everyone this has been absolutely wonderful um really invigorating conversation and uh, the the energy is, is really infectious um yeah uh, um uh, any 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 last remarks or any anything you'd like to plug um 
any any sort of I guess maybe the big message is go go unionize. Um, is is that that what we'll sign off on? <laughs> Every worker deserves a union. Doesn't matter if you're a tech worker. Doesn't matter if you make six figures. If you are selling your labor, you deserve to have a say in how it's used. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, and with that, thanks very much, everyone. It has, it has really, truly been wonderful. Um, I just want to say thanks so much for having us. It's always nice to get to relive um, the experience. It was such an honor, really like one of the honors of my life to get to be part of this organizing committee and to work with all of these incredible folks. And I'm just excited when we get to have little reunions and uh, see each other's faces on Zoom. So thank you. And everyone should organize their workplace. Um, find me on Twitter if you want to ask me how. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much. This is great. Yeah. Thanks for having us. This is great. This is great. It was great to hear everybody's voices. I think I think this is a great little taste of the oral history because it's just... <laughs> a bunch of organizers talking about what we what we went through so <laughs> great and we're back um Wow, that was it was that was a great conversation. I just um, I, I, I said it at the start, but like I absolutely love the the energy and like their their approach to organizing, like um, this kind of uh, joyous and very human way of organizing, and um, it's it's such a contrast with your your usual kind of flat cap militant militant sort of stuff. Um, and with almost everyone's experience with unions, they're usually fairly dour kind of affairs. Um, yeah, yeah, I well, mean. Despite everything that's been said here, you know, obviously I've benefited from being in a union in the past to some degree. I mean, to a considerable degree, I'd say. But I've never had a positive relationship <laughs> with any union I've been in before. Yeah. Like, it's Strictly it's always beige. been extremely distant, very top down, has nothing to do with me at all. Uh, I don't believe they would stand up for me if I ever went to them. You know, there's there's no relationship whatsoever. It's completely different from the energy that I think we got in that interview. Uh, so, you know, it's everyone should have a union like it's pretty much universally the case that you will get better working conditions by being in a union. But, um, you know, your experience will vary. Right. And uh, uh, it was nice to see a very positive experience with working with a union, working with a national, forming a union and having union relationships that were about uh, real solidarity uh, as opposed to like sort of the most abstract Marxian mm. economic rationality, uh, <laughs> which is generally what my form. relationship with unions <laughs> have been. <laughs> Absolutely right. Um, yeah, I, I, I was also kind of struck by the the way they were, and, and maybe this is actually clearer in the uh, oral history, but they were very conscious that they were setting precedents um, and they were going to be setting the tone for organizing in the tech sector going forward. And I think, yeah, there's there's the um, that consciousness and like the, this this does stri- strike a very different tone, like as you were saying, right? This and if this is you know that this if this is them calling the key of the tune that's about to be played with. Um, 
hope what what hopefully becomes more more unionization in the tech sector. It's a really good key. You know, this is this is a, this is a good good note to start off on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like I've talked about on the show before how I've all sort of had hopes that techs are techs sector workers would unionize and would lead a union drive and a new wave of unionization. Uh, and this is kind of like, you know, a dynamic that is beyond my wildest dreams in terms of like, well, this is, this is really nice to see. Yeah, <laughs> it's very absolutely. positive. Yeah. Uh, you know, notwithstanding the fact that so many of them were laid off in the unionization process. They were casualties of war, the class war. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still certainly a difficult process, right? Um, which I guess is, it, that's the sort of in- interesting thing that unfolds across the, that whole story, right? That like, um, going from a sort of initial expectation that it would be relative, a relatively easy process. And then, the bosses get the knives out and like, it's like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> holy shit. We're, we're really in for something here. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, a it, it really is like a real material conflict. It's, um, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. And I would also say one thing that occurred to me in listening to the oral history, uh, was that the stories being told there and the union busting techniques that are being, uh, recounted, uh, what people suffered through because of management um, certainly apply to any any unionization drive. Like you know, it's it's all by the book, right? Like they literally bring in the union busting lawyers and just deploy <laughs> their arsenal, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think these are all uh, methods of attacking collective power that you are going to see outside of the union struggle as well, right? Uh, because, you know, the the class war is not just about the union fight, right? Uh, there's, there's many areas of life where that comes in. Uh, so, you know, for example, I uh, was a part of an RPG community called The Gauntlet, tabletop RPG community called The Gauntlet, um, and... We had a kind of founder syndrome, founder syndrome problem where we had a founder who was exercising very uh, arbitrary power and being and, and doing many abuses of power. Uh, and our attempts to sort of grapple with that and respond to that in a community that was very much couched in the same kind of progressive language and ideology that we see at Kickstarter really just echoed everything I experienced, right? Like it was like what I, what I saw the managers doing in that uh, documentary was like one for one, the same things I saw the leadership in that community doing to disrupt us, to break our power and to stop us. And I mean, ultimately the thing was, we were not in a workplace, we couldn't unionize, and we were still facing down the power of private property and and not able to confront that in order to actually get collective power. Um, so obviously we were defeated, whether they succeeded, but it was still really good to say like, oh yeah, like actually these like sort of gaslighting techniques, emotional manipulation, divide and conquer, all this kind of stuff, uh, you know, sort of appealing to 
uh, false solidarity of, of, of an organization that doesn't acknowledge the divide between private property and social production. Um, this stuff is like all throughout society. So if, you know, you're not in a situation where, you know, you uh, think you can unionize right now, it's still really worth looking at this process because these are forms of abuse that capitalist class uh, power deploys everywhere. And like, you know, obviously this also goes for political parties like the Democratic Party or something like that. Right. Or or, you know the right-wing labor leadership or what have you. These, these things are deployed all across society. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, there's great value in learning and comparing notes across these different things because if these kinds of um, petty micro-tyrannies have the same structure and function but with slightly different content um, at all these different, in all these different instances and across these different scales, then it stands to reason that like this, the structure of the thing is going to be pretty much the same and the structure of like the tactics you can use against it and the tactics it's going to use against you are going to be the same. Um, and that this was fairly explicit with the Kickstarter folks that like the, um, the national, like the, the bigger union that was advising them, um, it, it could do like what they called inoculation. They could, they could tell them ahead of time what kind of bullshit to expect. And then that meant that when the bosses started to be like, oh, well, you know, you're just being very disruptive and we all, we all really, we all believe in the mission and we all just want to get on with our jobs. It's like, no, they're fucking with us. This, this isn't sincere, it's horseshit. And like, oh, and it's also, the language is identical to the letters they send to every other fucking workplace that tries to unionize. And it's because it's written by the same guy. It's just, it's just a fucking lawyer they've brought in to do this stuff. They're not, they're not being sincere. Don't believe them. If you believe them, you're being fooled. And, you know, it's, it's not virtuous to be fooled, you know? And, but you can compare notes and prepare for that ahead of time. And then it doesn't work because you're inoculated. You're inoculated against the brain virus that they're trying to deploy against you. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, the this documentary series, this oral history, it really serves that inoculation role to a broader audience, and it also uh, provides sort of experience and information and strategies for uh, winning, for fighting back against uh, the techniques, because, uh, you know, I just sort of in passing, I'd seen a lot of the sort of inoculation literature before speaking to union organizers and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's it's a lot more impactful in a concrete context. And it's really nice to see like, OK, well, how did we fight back? Because, you know, with like you can kind of get into that like structuralist headset like, oh, well, you know, these, these are the techniques that power deploys and it's all encompassing. It's everywhere. They have a million lawyers and, you know, how could you ever possibly win? Well, you can kind of see in this, in the series, like how you win. Yeah. Well, like their, their strategies are very one note. That's the thing is that like, yeah, they have power, but they're kind of not very good at it in a sense as well, that, that they're, they're kind of non-adaptive and like, it's they just, they just use the same fucking word doc as a template for, for every one of these attempts. And I think that there's a great value in seeing that and comparing those notes across instances and being like, Hey, it's just, it's the same fucking riff over and over again that they, and that that should be, you know, to, to bring in that kind of Berean or Boydian sort of thing of like that, that should give us a leg up on being able to disrupt their loop while reinforcing yeah. our own. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, we know what the playbook is. Um, 
they are, you know, the, the, the thing is that what is, you know, the sort of obvious continual uh, advantage that management has, which they bring up in the oral history, uh, is that the organizers are working a second shift, doing a second full-time job to do organization. It's like verboten for them to organize on company time. Whereas the managers, not only is it their job to organize on company time, they also get to use the entire resources of the corporation to do so, right? Like the the work, the 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 surplus value that the workers are producing is deployed against them. So they're act like you know you you look at this example. And you really see what Marx is talking about with, you know, the simple reproduction schema of like, this is how the capitalist class uses worker power against workers. So they actually have in sort of Berean terms, a drastically amplified amount of variety, not only because they're able to use more time for this purpose, but also because they're able to hire on lawyers and consultants and all these kinds of other people, uh, not to mention take advantage of the resources of the state, right? So um, it's like we have the advantage of them sticking to a very rote playbook. They have the advantage of a massive amount of variety amplification. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of dynamic we're facing here, right? Mm-hmm. I think that would indicate that um, making it cheaper to organize um, by, by by standardized or like kind of like because like the Kickstarter folks had to go through this process of like being like, oh, we, we you know, th there's this whole prehistory of even getting to the point where they decide they want a union. And then there's like, what the fuck do we do? No, none of us know how to do that. And then, then they have to like figure it out. And it's a fairly slow process. And then they have to get um, the national. And yeah, that it works out, right? That like they people can teach them how to do this and they can build up the skills and stuff. Um, but making that whole process cheaper, making it so that you don't spend entire second shifts doing this stuff, you, you spend maybe a half of a second shift doing it, um, would, would help the workers a lot to have uh, toolkits and playbooks of their own that they could deploy fairly quickly that are, that are you know, being able to get up to speed much quicker across the whole industry and across all industries would be, would be very valuable. Well, I mean, that's exactly what the oral history does, right? It's a, a variety amplifier for the working class, right? Like it's it's taking this one experience and amplifying it so that many other people can just listen to it and go, oh, OK, like that's pretty much how things are going to go in the tech sector when I'm, I'm organizing because you, you would expect it to be pretty much the same thing. You know, like when we talked to uh, Wendy Liu uh, about Google, for example, like the in, in a, um, like the, the atmosphere there, even though it's not a public benefit corporation, obviously, <laughs> uh, was pretty similar to what they were kind of experiencing at, at Kickstarter. And they, they kind of talked about that. So, like, you expect the playbook to be the same, right? It all goes back to this kind of, like, paternalism, right? You know, we're here to do something important. Daddy's in charge, and 
you know, daddy's here to protect you against all the mean people from the outside. And like, how dare you let these homewrecker unionists into your into our family kind of bullshit. Yeah. Right. Like this is it's all this guilt shit that they they pull on you. It's the same Uh, pattern, right? Like it boils down to this very simple skeletal kind of structure, right? And you, you got to kill the daddy in your head. <laughs> you <know what> <laughs> Yo, definitely, definitely. You got to put put Oedipus to the sword. You know. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, for sure, for sure, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's why we're we're so fucking disappointed in like Leninist cult bullshit and like the just repetition of the daddy dynamic within this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, goddamn fools. Like, how is it not obvious that this is a problem? You know. <laughs> yeah, no, it blows my mind. Like this. <laughs> It's like, you know, people who are subject to abusive patterns recapitulate those patterns. And you definitely see that in all the cult bullshit we see in uh, on the left. Uh, and thankfully, looking at the Kickstarter uh, dynamic, that that is not in evidence anywhere. Right. Like that. Those feelings of um, emotional intensity and uh, group belongingness that uh, are common to both this case and cults, you know, are there. But the core thing is that the organizational dynamic is fundamentally different, right? Like this is this is not about daddy being the head of the family and then everyone feeling a sense of belonging because they're under that family head. This is just this is about worker solidarity and a community that is uh, of equals and peers instead of, you know, common subjects of the great leader. Yeah, they seem to have had a, a pretty big advantage in that on that front as well in being a pretty diverse workplace and having what seems to be the union effort being driven by a lot of non-men um, and a lot of diverse people. Um, I, I suspect that would have an impact on how all that plays out. Yeah, uh, the impression I get from the oral history is that the workplace was not that diverse, but predictably in the sort of like safety and comms space, there was a lot of diversity, right? And that was kind of a core that was able to like expand out to the rest of the corporation. Like, I'm not saying it was all like cis white men, but the impression I get is that it was a lot of cis whites and then a kind of uh, small area of hirees who were being paid a lot less, but nonetheless had a ton of uh, expertise, exp- like uh, life experiences, um, ca- capacities, all of these things, and were able to like drive the uh, effort because they were being treated unequally and they also had a lot of skills to bring to the table. Uh, and we're able to actually like have a prominent voice in the organizing and unionization process. And I guess the um, the like safety and comms teams um, were at the nexus of that instigating event with the um, the ban of that particular project and so on. And that like so they were in the middle of the yes. collaboration. Yes. Um, yeah. Just yeah. Just to make that super clear is that 
this uh, punch Nazi, was it punch all Nazis? Uh, always punch Nazis, sorry. Yeah, always punch Nazis. I guess this is like following the uh, Milo punching incident, I think. Uh, <laughs> some, you know, someone made a call. Like these, because that became a whole controversy, like, oh my God, like this pearl clutching about like, oh, you're punching the Nazis. How dare you? Uh, um and, uh, you know, so someone goes and makes like a kind of jokey comic to just sort of like, you know, say, fuck you, we're going to punch Nazis <laughs> and punching Nazis is not a bad thing. Uh, and then there is a uh, policy for reviewing projects on Kickstarter that was specifically formulated by that team, which had this this clause in it about. Well, if there is like sort of violence depicted, if it's punching up, then we're okay with that and we are not going to remove them from Kickstarter. That policy was explicitly in place. It had been approved by management and then legal got spooked because Breitbart sent them an email, right? Uh, yeah, so that that kind of kicked off the whole thing, right? Um yeah, so so they were at the core of that, but they also had a lot of legitimacy to draw upon because this was approved policy that the management was just bailing on at a whim because they got scared. Yeah, just like absolutely craven bullshit from from legal. And there there's a ton of this going on right now. Like in uh like basically the inciting event for I think a lot of this stuff is the Gawker death, right? Where uh, 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 a lawsuit basically brought down that organization um, and a lot of news organizations or even just any public facing organization is really really scared especially the legal department is really really scared because they don't want to fight they don't want to fight battles um, and <sighs> yeah, they, they they just turn into cowards. Like they're the cowards. thing is, like they're kind of there explicitly to fight battles, but they don't actually want to fight battles because the best war that you can ever fight is the one you don't fight at all, right? You know, that's the best victory is the one you don't have to fight for at all. Grim. Um, um, that's that's that definitely that seems to have been the kind of like beginning of the the cracks showing right and like you kind of see that like because this is something i see a lot with um startups and like tech stuff right that like these are often very small organizations with a lot of specialization like as, as i said in the interview you don't you don't have like the massive factory with just row after row of fucking yellow hard hats and blue jumpsuits right like you've got fairly small small organizations with a lot of like specialization where it's it's more like a network with it with a hierarchy embedded in it rather than like an outright kind of very easily easily legible Taylorist sort of hierarchy. Um, and then just the fact that you're in such close contact with people who do technically have a lot of power over you, but then if you don't really experience it every day, it can, it can all glom together into this kind of feel-good mess of like, hey, look, everybody's getting paid and everyone gets along. It's, it's all fine. But then, yeah, like if one of these kind of like, in that, in that blob, you have these like, uh, these uh, ambiguities and ambivalences and these like overlapping force fields of like you know like interests that aren't quite realized and then you have these instigating events that like actually put a crack 
in it and start to start to like um, much the way like a, a pane of glass will crack. It's like the initial pressure starts off some splinters and then those inform the way that the pattern will break. Um, but but the, those those cracks develop along existing stress lines. There was already stress in the glass before it happened. It's just that this like, little impact of energy was enough to to set it going. Um, and like with yeah, with the oral history, you definitely see that like cascade of problems and like kind of open confrontation between the workers and the management that would a year prior have been very smothered. Right, like it would have just been ambient in a way that nobody could really pin down. Right. And I mean, you know, one of the obvious things that is like very important that happened in this process was that people began to notice that their particular uh, oppression in the face of management was not actually individual, but was actually systemic. So, I mean, it might be obvious enough to say like, well, I'm not a white cis man. I'm I'm earning less than the rest of the company. What a surprise. But when you are put in a one-on-one with your manager and you are being explicitly talked down to, it's very easy to internalize that as a personal problem. And then once it becomes clear, oh no, like like these disciplinary things in in the wake of punch uh, all his punch Nazis. Uh, it wasn't just one person. There were a lot of people who were being targeted. And it's like, oh, okay. So there's like actually an actor out there on the side of capital that is engaging in strategic disciplining of us as individuals. And as long as we're siloed off, we're, we're you know, easy pickings, right? Uh, you need you need to form the herd, right? Yeah, definitely, right. And the the, the um, I guess the the kind of like petty revenge tactics and stuff that the bosses were deploying are, are not surprising on some level. But in the moment, they can be kind of like they can they seem really kind of egregious. It's like wow, Jesus, these these folks are just really petty and awful. And like, there's a kind of double think we all need to engage in just to operate in the workplace where it's like, I understand that the capitalist system exists and entails all kinds of oppressions that I am subject to. Nevertheless, I do actually need to work for a boss (laughs) in order to live. And so I need to bracket that knowledge in my head and sort of foreground the personal relationships and background the systemic analysis. Just because if you don't, what are you going to do, right? Like, what are you going to do? You're you're proletarianized. You don't have the means to live by yourself. You've got to go work for a capitalist. How can you make this work in your head? Yeah, I think um, I think that's why the like the um, the sort of psychology of like terror management theory can be kind of kind of interesting and useful. That like the the organism does have a sort of incentive to ignore reality if it's too traumatic to contemplate. And you do, you do kind of, people do have to find a way to get along in the world. And that can mean like in our organizing efforts, kind of extending a bit of charity to the apparently backward. Um, And that like, 
you know, it's 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 maybe not the case that this this the the holdouts for the union effort initially are outright kind of in just class traders. It's it's maybe that they're they're not quite there yet, and that the spell isn't entirely broken. Now there will be just scumbags and uh, people that you'll never get on side, but then there's definitely this thing where people come around like once once they're once they have the space to contemplate the the, the truth without it blowing their minds completely. Um, or I mean, what, what, what you're doing with the union as well is that you're you're offering a safe island of like you you can come and stand here with us, and it's you're I'm not saying you should jump off the boat into the fucking shark infested water. I'm saying jump off that boat into this boat, and that's very different from what people perceive up front as like, oh this is this is a tiny boat. We're surrounded by sharks. If I ever fall out of the boat, I'm fucked. And so I have to stay in the boat at all costs. You kind of have to demonstrate to the people that there is a there is another boat there to jump into, and that means that when you're organizing, the, the it, it like game theoretically, it's actually against your interest to be the first, second, or third person in a union, but it's in your interest to be the tenth or the thirtieth. Oh, um, absolutely! Like yeah, it, you kind of have to start demonstrating that this is possible. Yeah, I mean that's always been my experience with unions before. Is like I'm the four hundredth person. I'm the thousandth person to come into this union and I get the downstream benefits that these heroes have, have done. They've, they've rolled that boulder way up that hill for you, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know who founded the union. I don't know even who my union rep was, right? Like I not in a, I mean, I have been a part of sort of bargaining teams and, and, and kind of like participated in union committee work as, as an instructor in the past but for the most part, I just it's completely alien, but I'm still benefiting from it. Right. You know, uh, yeah, um, um, I think I wonder if this sort of would inform um, a kind of multi-layer kind of strategy for like there's obviously like doing the Kickstarter United thing where you have a, a workplace that is ripe for unionization and you push for it. Um, but then there's a the question of what to do if you find yourself any workplace that just doesn't seem to yet have those fault lines developing or like, I mean, there's, there's the ambient pressure is always there, but it's not yet at the point where it's going to fracture. And I think maybe the thing to do is to start getting kind of prepared, do your reading, do your research. And like, as I think that's the way our, our friend Esri puts it, like act as a sleeper agent from the future. You can't blow your cover yet, but you should be ready to move when the time comes. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, Kickstarter was a bit of an unusual case because they were this public benefit corporation. They were asking people to take a pay cut to come in. So everybody who was coming to work there was basically ideologically motivated at some level, uh, which is not going to be the case in most capitalist firms. Uh, but that doesn't mean that those tensions aren't there, right? Um, I think like the, the tensions are always there, but it's just that I think especially in tech, it can be... It can be the case that the whole the whole mass of workers there isn't yet at a point of realizing that the tensions are there. And it can be very difficult to propose a union without the kind of without the ball already kind of being rolling with these instigating um, events. Right. Like it's it's if you're the first person to come along and try and break the illusion, it it might not work. But once the illusion is already cracking um, you, and so it's, it's it's just I'm, I'm kind of like. <sighs> trying to think through in the in the back of my head like what do you do if you're in a if you're in a position where you know obviously you'd like to 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 organize the working class but your own workplace just it just isn't showing those fault lines yet um i think pre preparation work and like getting 
getting a game plan ready or comparing notes with like, you I mean, go, go and talk to other people who are organizing other workplaces and see if you can discover fault lines that, that might exist in your own organization that, that you can get from somewhere else. And the other important thing to do is just like your system two stuff, right? Like just talk to people, get to know your coworkers, build relationships like that's super important. And as your organization gets larger, that's going to be harder and harder. Organization of 150 people, chances are you at least passingly know everyone in the corporation. Uh, But maybe your unionization drive is just going to be a subsection of the corporation, right? And in that case, you know, those relationships are still really important. And, um, you know, yeah, this, this system two stuff is really, really important. Mm-hmm. I kind of I'm almost suspicious now with the, the 150 being like kind of Dunbar's number. It's like it's almost at a sweet spot of like because if if it, if it's a workplace of 50 people, you might you might run into that like the, the startup trap I was talking about before, where it's like there's just too much interpersonal glue to really have the fault lines be become apparent in that way. Um, it's like what do you mean like organize against Dave? I'm like he's nice, you know this kind of this kind of stuff. But when you get to 150, you're in a kind of a sweet spot, and that's. If you're then at like 300 or 500, you, you've already started to break down into um, a sort of patchwork of cells, as, as tends to happen when you kind of cross that 150-ish kind of threshold, um, it seems. Yeah, um, this is not an insurmountable problem, but there is a kind of elementary size there that is conducive to having a good conception of the entirety of the organization. I mean, they even talk in the oral history about how moving into the new office space that they had uh, was already creating a certain amount of like cell division and siloing compared to where they were in the initial situation. I forgot all about that. Yeah, because they were going from um, a space where everything was all open, collaborative, and that sort of stuff, and the new office space was more enclosed, and there was just that... It had, like, office... or Sorry, it had meeting rooms, right? Yeah. Yeah, rather than like just closed meeting rooms as opposed to, like, let's all meet in the kitchen and everyone can come in and see what's going on. Yeah. So keep an eye out for those kinds of fault lines and those kind of developments. I guess what this all really boils down to is, like, talk to people and look around. Like, look, look around at what's happening. Like you use your eyes and ears to to look and really look at your own workplace and, and the people in it. It's the, the very foundation of that kind of organizing. Well, and one other thing I'd like to bring up that was kind of standing out for, to me uh, from the oral history was like prior to Perry sort of doing a coup and uh, taking power, right? Like the the co-founder who was the chair of the board and possibly majority owner uh, kicked out the previous uh, CEO and became, quote-unquote, interim CEO, as in, you know, temporary dictator for life. (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) um, You know, prior to him coming in, it seemed like Kickstarter was more or less a viable system. Right, because the MO, like they had a solid system for, they had a big project in Drip that was informed by market research, uh, was forward looking. You know, if Drip had happened, maybe we would be on Drip. Mm. 
yeah. instead of Patreon, right? Because the thing that they were saying is, well, it's great that Patreon exists, but that is owned by VCs. And if you had a public benefit corporation that was privately held, that was offering the same sorts of services, that's very attractive because you don't have that kind of uh, background anxiety about existing on a platform that is owned by VC. So, you know, their system four was very strong there. Uh, their CEO at the time was bringing on a lot of people who are willing to defer to their system ones in terms of how the the organization was being run. Um, there was less siloing and less management in encouragement of siloing so like the system two is strong you know those managers were doing good system three work like it seemed like it was more or less a viable system and then of course the system five stuff in terms of the ceo but also like the the ethos that was driving the public benefit corporation was very clear and very strong to the point that people were taking pay cuts to come and work for them right and so, like, all of that viability was pretty much there. There was still oppression that was going on. There were still people who were being paid less than they were worth. There was still pay inequality. There was still, you know, inequality between departments. There were, there were tensions that were there already just because it was, you know, operating in capitalism. But fundamentally, viability was there. And the thing that really gets stuff moving is when you have someone who comes in and tries to do the butt clench right you just you know basically i'm the new system five and i'm gonna run everything from on top we're all gonna go back to the old shitty way of doing things um which you know snowballs into uh all those punch nazis being put under question right but like the you know lots of just sort of arbitrary like i'm the wizard who's you know, sits in his high tower and passes down obscure management plans and reorgs to the rest of the corporation. Elements like, or whatever the fucking harebrained bullshit was. You yeah, know. like weird stuff like that. Um, there is a degree to which, like, I think the union drive was actually trying to reassert viability in addition to combating all of the oppressions that people were facing at, the, at that time in the organization. I wonder if, like, th th this could make for a really excellent kind of Berean case study, right? That, like, you have, you have viability and then the attempts of the, like, owner management to become autonomous in their own right are what trigger the, like, response, an, an immune response from within the body itself that then... Is, is what ultimately leads to their own downfall. And then, like, yeah, you get you get a union in response. Like, what was was that, like, spasm of autonomy for management really worth it, ultimately? You know, do you, do you feel fucking good about that, folks? You know, having lost, ultimately? It's, it's quite delicious, actually. Yeah. You know? And, I mean, it's interesting because beer talks so little about the... about conflict within a system, Right. Like he's very much does not focus on that. Right. Because he's kind of trying to describe like an ideal type of this is how he does occasionally. He does. He does. But he doesn't talk about like so much. Um, OK, what happens if a higher level of recursion just asserts itself? What is the immune response? Right. Like in beer in brain of the firm, it's like this could happen. 
but it doesn't really get into it, you know? It's like... I think there's, like, a sentence where he says something about it, and it's he, he says it by, like, analogy to, like, if you decide to hold your breath until you pass out, the organs will get revenge on you by making you pass out, and they'll, they'll restore oxygen balance in your absence. Like, the, the, the body will fight back against the, like, in the, if, if, the, if the brain sort of goes mad and intends to destroy the body, the body will fight back against it. And, like, knock out the consciousness so that they, so that they can just restore balance uh, autonomously. But that's, that's it. That's a, that's a sentence. That's not much. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, obviously this is something he was aware of. It just wasn't, like, his primary subject he was writing about. Uh, and, yeah, like, I think the thing, the, the key thing is that each system one has its own system five. And it may be subordinate to the higher system five. And... But like, you know, sometimes there can be a split between sort of like the ethos or objectives of the organization and what the management is actually doing. And so like sometimes, you know, it's like you must disobey the law to obey the higher law. Uh, And that kind of seems to be what got the unionization drive going in a way. Right. Like, because, you know, the whole thing about um always punch Nazis, it was partially about the autonomy of the committee that drafted those rules, but it was also just sort of about the ethos of the organization in general, right? It was a, it was a fight over the System 5 of the whole, the whole organization. Mm-hmm. Which had, had yeah, been like, what are we about? Yeah, it, and it had been implicitly uh, concordant until that point, and it became obvious that it wasn't. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the analogy is, is, is pretty clear there, and like, Anyway, yeah, I, I, the the yeah, hold your breath if you want. The, the the lungs will let you pass out, and then they'll just restore oxygen balance in your absence. That's that's what that's what's gonna happen, you know. It's like yeah, fuck you, brain. <laughs> you don't know. You can't tell me what to do. I'm gonna breathe, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I I think it's a very interesting case study. Uh, in that regard, I think it has a lot to say for uh, workers in general. Uh, well worth taking a look at and extremely appreciative of the organizers coming on here to oh yeah it was great um really really appreciate having them i mean uh, one thing i will say though is just the last thing is that um uh in seeing them sort of communicate with each other and uh talk in back channels on text chat while we were doing the interview i got very much the same vibe that I got at Lumio in terms of like, these are people who are very used to communicating with one another and have a lot of expertise in doing that. Um, And yeah, I mean, that's just kind of a constant when you deal with people from like effective organizations Mm -hmm. (laughs) that there is a kind of like familiarity, but also an expertise and a sort of built up knowledge about like, who needs to be acknowledged? Like, how should we communicate? What is the format of our communication? Uh, just like, you know, a, a general awareness of the collective uh, that is always very impressive to see. Absolutely right. They're, um, they're a well-gelled band. You know, they're um, very, very accustomed. It's, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
yeah wow it was a it was a hell of a discussion um thanks listeners it's it's been great um we will have i think there's one more interview coming up um and then we're we're on to our kentucky route zero playthrough which i think will be minimum like five episodes probably because uh, that's uh, substantial, to say the least. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've just completed one playthrough. Um, well, I was, I was actually watching my uh, partner play it, and she was playing it for the first time. Um, and that was, that was really interesting, watching somebody else uh, select the dialogue. Um, and led to some great discussions after. So I need to do another playthrough before we get there um, and we'll start discussing it. It's, um, it's going to be really great, though. Uh, so this is kind of last call for if you want to play along with us. You should probably get started around now um, and uh, and get get it done before we start releasing. My first playthrough of this game was at the start of this year, um, and I'm happy to be playing through it again at the end of the year. Uh, it's 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 so good. It's worth coming back to in the same year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Um, and in the meantime, catch us on Twitter, GIUnitPod. Um, we're on Facebook, website, you know, all the, the routine by now. Um, we will put some links in the show notes to the Kickstarter United stuff, um, to their podcast, um, all those relevant sort of materials. Um, you can also, uh, yeah, I, I, we're out of practice. I've, I've forgotten the fucking readout um, again. <laughs> uh, emancipation. Um Emancipation.network, check out our sister shows, um, Swampside Chats, Jumpsuit Ut- Utopia, From Alpha to Omega, and Mortal Science. Um, yeah, uh, we've been doing the um, Discovery Season 3 uh, on, so Star Trek Discovery Season 3 on Jumpsuit Utopia. Uh, it's been an interesting experience uh, with that. Uh, you know, um, we're discussing the utopian themes of Star Trek there. Uh, we also have um, Eric Olden Wright's Understanding Class uh, coming out on uh, From Alpha to Omega. So we're going to be doing the recordings for that. Uh, and that'll be a long discussion about the nature of class and the infamous PMC thesis. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah it, both interesting uh, things to check out. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted that the Eric Olin Wright won out in the vote because <laughs> I was real fucking mad when it got it, we got Brumaire last time. I was like, and I was like, I'm going to throw my fucking laptop out the window if it's not, if it's not Eric Olin Wright this time. At least it's a good book, right? I mean, uh, that was still really interesting to read, but uh, I'm I, I was pushing for understanding class. And I'm glad to be reading it. Uh, we'll see how I feel when we get to the end of the book. But uh, at the moment, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is an important thing to talk about. So, yeah, certainly. And if you go to patreon.com slash general intellect unit, throw us a couple of bucks a month, get into the community discord. Um, and you can listen in on the Brain of the Farm reading group um, sessions while they're happening. I'd imagine by this time, the time this comes out, we'll probably be done with the majority of chapter 20 and we'll kind of be wrapping up but um yeah we, we'll have another reading group someday um we'll take a little bit of a break from that but um yeah there there will be another one upcoming for sure um and uh all this has been a a very interesting experience and uh yeah please uh keep listening to our discussions about uh, beer and other subjects 
Um, yeah, thanks again, listeners, and we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.